Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And uh, tonight, we're, we're picking up with step number four on obedience. So we finished the, the first three steps were up, that were on the break with the world, uh, renunciation, detachment, and exile. And uh, so we're picking up with obedience, which is one of the longer steps in the entire ladder, along with penitence, which follows uh, this step. And uh, for good reason, I think uh, Climacus puts forward the, the value of obedience for us, you know, mostly because it's, uh, when one embraces it, they imitate Christ in a profound way, who was obedient to his father's will, even to the point of death. And it's in it through this that our salvation comes. And so to embrace the life of obedience is in a profound way to confess the faith. It's to bear witness to the faith in a very powerful and concrete fashion. And so this is how Climacus and so many of the Desert Fathers would see it. And uh, he started out by defining it for us. And here he'll begin to uh, sort of unpack it a little bit for us. And then he'll begin to offer us a series of stories uh, from the lives of individuals who bear witness to it in a profound way. So we're, we're on, again, page 69, number four. The beginning of the mortification, both of the soul's desire and of the bodily, bodily members, is much harder. Somebody's playing piano during the midst of our group here. All right. So let me, let me start that again. The beginning of the mortification, both of the soul's desires, desire and the bodily members, is much hard work. The middle is sometimes laborious and sometimes not laborious, but the end is insensibility and susceptibility to toil and pain. Only when he sees himself doing his own will does this blessed living corpse feel sorry and sick at heart, and he fears the responsibility of using his own judgment. So it's a, a rather uh, dark image, perhaps, and... Uh, not real pleasing image, sort of a living corpse uh, doesn't sound very appealing, no matter how you, how you say it. But uh, what he's getting at here is that it isn't an easy path. In fact, it's the most difficult uh, of paths, as we will see. And it is a dying to self, mortification, the dying to self and to self-will and setting aside one's own desires, both of soul and body, and placing oneself under the direction of another. And this is something that's freely embraced, uh, as we've talked about a good bit in the Evergetinos. Uh, one gives one's own will over to another, uh, especially when there is a lack of purity of heart. And this is why part of the reason it seemed to be is uh, so helpful and so beautiful that when we lack that clarity about our own judgments and uh, struggle to embrace the will of God, to have an elder who's lived a life of obedience, who's been formed and shaped by it, whose heart is pure, then to guide and direct us is a blessed thing. And uh, so John can speak of it in this kind of language that is very strong, because what he will present to us is the, the beautiful fruit of it. It is the hardest path, uh, but it is also the shortest path, he tells us, to sanctity and the one that conforms us the most to Christ. Uh, 
One of the fruits he mentions here is insensi insensibility and insusceptibility in to toil and pain. So it frees a person, I think, from being overwhelmed by what others do to us or say to us or by the circumstances of day-to-day -day life when we live under the obedience of another and we aren't seeking to control the minute details of our day-to-day -day life. We don't get caught up in the machinations of others and seek to control those things. We are able to simply keep our eyes focused on what has been given to us to do. And uh, whether for a monk living in a monastery, the obedience of day-to-day -day life, fulfilling one's duties or the tasks that would be given by an elder, uh, that it frees a person on a certain level from having to worry about those things that uh, all of a sudden uh, we find ourselves not having to uh, try to figure out how to deal with certain individuals or certain circumstances in order to keep ourselves from being uh, you know, found in a position where we're inconvenienced or having to do something that goes against the grain or that we do not want to do. Uh, I think when we do this under obedience and we have great faith and love of the elder, which we'll see again how important that is throughout the step, then a great freedom comes across us that we have no fear of what is asked of us because we know the one who's asking it of us loves us and uh, has one care, which is our salvation and the formation of our minds and our hearts. And again, you know, I think this can be difficult for us to wrap our minds around. Um, perhaps many of us haven't tasted this kind of freedom uh, from the circumstance, fear of the circumstances or uh, fear of how others would treat us, uh, that we find ourselves resisting, I think, maybe even embracing obedience to our station in life and our particular vocation and in all that it calls us to do in terms of our loving and giving ourselves in love to others. And we begin to look away from it, especially when it becomes very difficult and a lot is demanded from us. We begin to seek another path for ourselves or to free ourselves from the burden of it. Okay. So, number five. Oh, wait a second. Mark, you have a question here? Um, yeah, kind of a question mixed with a comment. Uh, so for me, <clears throat> this sounds awesome. And it, it's, it's really kind of a goal of mine, you know, of, and it, I've come to the conclusion that the only way I can get there is through the grace of God. Um, and I think, this kind of like, there's so many things, that's why I couldn't type it out because I, there's so many things that I think about, like how, how I was brought up and how that affects how I think and how I approach people and how I worry and all that, you know, how I went to law school and, you know, a lawyer, and that makes you think about different things from different angles. And so you, sometimes it's hard to find that peace, but I find like the more I pray, the more I, the more grace I get, the more I'm able to, um, find those times of peace amidst the storm, which is what I think about here. I don't know if that's the right thing to be thinking about, but I wish I could have some crash course in how to get myself to a better place where I'm not attached. And I just keep working at it. But I, 
I just wonder this, this, if it's this is the crash course. It only takes, you know, three or four years for us to get through the crash course and reading the text. But in, in many ways, I, I'm not trying to be facetious here, but it is true. I think part of it is reading the fathers that we begin to see the path that they took and that they embraced that brought them to that point of great freedom. And part of it is what you said, you know, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is peace. And so when we are, have freed ourselves through uh, the ascetical life and through the life of prayer from anger, then we begin to live in the peace of the kingdom. And we begin to be free from the things that would agitate the mind and the heart. And we begin to be able to see the things of our day-to-day -day life and our work, the things that are asked of us, and be able to enter into those things without losing our peace as well. And uh, I think all, almost as an automatic response, we will hesitate in circumstances like that, uh, even if it is part of our vocation or of our particular work that God has called us to, that whenever we come up against something that pulls us away from fulfilling our own will or where we don't find satisfaction in it in some measure, or it really requires us to go the extra mile or to do something that we don't like, we will uh, shrink back. But if we are praying constantly, and you know, seeking this intimacy with the Lord, then we begin to live in that peace and begin to see things through a different lens. And that lens, I think, is Christ himself. You know, we begin to see all of our life through him and what he's made possible for us. And I think that gives us then the freedom to embrace the same path that he did and begin even to desire it for ourselves. But it really does come down to a formation of mind and heart and the struggle with the thoughts that we have on a given days. We've talked about so many times before. The things that would pull us away uh, from not only from Christ, but from walking the path that he's asked us to walk. Okay. All right, number five. You have decided to strip for the arena of this spiritual confession you that wish to take on the neck, the yoke of Christ, you that are therefore trying to lay your own burden on another's shoulders, you that are hastening to sign a pledge that you are voluntarily surrendering yourself to slavery and in return want freedom. Written to your account, you that are being supported by the hands of others as you swim across the great sea, you should know that you have decided to travel by a short but rough way from which there's only one erring path, and that is called self-rule. But he who has renounced this entirely, even in things that seem to be good and spiritual and pleasing to God, has reached the end before setting out on his journey. For obedience is distrust of oneself in everything, however good it may be, right to the end of one's life. So a beautiful paragraph. I've always admired John Climacus. And as we get into the stories of individuals, uh, he's always, it's always very colorful and memorable in the way that he describes things, and at times poetic. And uh, th this is kind of the case here with this paragraph. You know, the image of those who are entering into the arena, stripping down, 
really letting go of everything and not just sort of the material things that surround us, but one's own will. It's stripping down in the most radical way. And one, one sort of does think of those who are in the arena or wrestlers of old, you know, that they would even cover themselves with oil so they could not be, somebody could not grab a hold of them. They became more elusive. And uh, this is sort of the image that comes to mind here with the idea of arena, uh, entering into the arena to engage in the spiritual warfare in the most serious way possible, to take upon one's neck the yoke of Christ. And we remember Christ himself saying, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And uh, it's, you know, what we are taking upon ourselves is the, the, the same spirit that guided and directed Christ himself. And this is a spirit of love and of obedience, and it's perfectly fit for us. And uh, a yoke, you know, that would be put on an oxen was very important, you know, that it would fit them just in the right way so that they might be able to fulfill their work. And similarly for us, this yoke is perfectly fit for us uh, by Christ himself, and not, does not become a burden to us, but rather is something that lifts us up. And I think in our own mind, we're challenged here because the, the thought of obedience, when we hear it, has all the connotations of being something that weighs us down, that is something that's a burden. And, uh, and even we find here in John a mix of this language, that it is surrendering ourselves to a slavery in return for freedom. And it's something that is freely done for that which is the, the greater gift, uh, at which he mentioned in the previous paragraph. And it is the shortest way, but also the roughest path for us, because it does mean letting go, letting go of something that we prize above all things, and that is our own will, our own judgment, our own opinion. And we will not relinquish this easily. You know, I think in the ascetic life as a whole, we can choose to fast or to engage in prayer, to study the fathers, to engage in any other particular practice, but to let go of one's will, one's judgment is the most difficult thing of all. This is what we would want to cling to. And it's not simply one for uh, in a monastery as John is talking about here. I think it's anybody in day-to-day -day life and marriage, you know, that how many, day, how many times and opportunities are there for one to let go of one's will uh, or that, you know, a response of negativity or harshness or uh, in one's fatigue. You know, if you have children that you're taking care of and they're all, uh, I think I mentioned the other week that there's a young woman uh, who I know who has a, a lot of little children. She's po posted this photograph of herself saying, you know, guess how many hands are on me at the moment? And she has like six kids and, you know, it was a hot day and you could tell and it's all good spirited. But the idea of having like six hands all touching you at the same time where you know your response to that and her response to that is to love, even though you know there's something obviously exhausting about that. You know, having to be attentive to all the children at the same time and their particular needs, their questions, their wants, 
that there is a kind of letting go of one's, one's own will or judgment. Uh, you know, I think parents often are pushed to that point where they probably want to scream and say, take all your hands off of me. I need five minutes, you know, or, and run in and lock the bathroom door kind of thing. Uh, and even then uh, you don't have much privacy, but the, you know, to get to the point that there is a way of embracing this obedience, the obedience of love in every station of our life and every person that we encounter. And sometimes that obedience can simply be engaging others with a kind of tenderness and gentleness in our day-to-day -day life, of being responsive to them uh, and to be able to see through the weight and the burden that we are carrying at the moment or our fatigue or the fact that we did not sleep the night before and be able to still engage with a generosity of spirit. And on a fundamental level, that means letting go of our own will. And uh, I mentioned in the last group that in monasteries, they often referred to their day-to-day -day work as their obedience. So the task that was given to them for the monastery for that day is something that they would take up with love and that generosity of spirit and try to do it in as joyful way as possible. And that they could have faith in that, that this is their, they're imitating Christ, they're being faithful to Christ by being faithful to what the community has asked them to do, and what their superior has asked them to do. And so what Climacus is speaking to us here isn't something that's far from us. In fact, it's right in front of us on a day-to-day basis. And so to listen to how he says it's to be embraced, I think is something important. And I think from this paragraph, it is to see it as something that ultimately brings freedom. You know, that there is a kind of slavery about it. I think when one gets married and, you know, the old ball and chain, you know, you're tied to for the rest of your life. No, uh, just kidding. But anyways, <laughs> Uh, you are committing yourself to someone in a particular path of life. And that means saying no to a whole host of other possibilities. And the same thing when you have children, then it, it means being attentive to that reality, to their needs, to forming them, to raising them. And again, that means saying no in certain moments to what we would perhaps prefer to be doing. And when we're able to do that with love, and again, a generosity of spirit, tenderness, is where we are being more and more conformed to Christ, that we, we do it freely and out of love. And uh, so to be confessors, to bear witness to the faith, doesn't take even words on our part as Christian men and women. I think our bearing witness to the love of Christ can take place in our day-to-day -day life by the way, simply by the way that we love and that we treat others. In fact, we talk too much. We should probably just focus on the task at hand. Okay, so the short but rough way, and so letting go of self-rule, and, but what he says in the last uh, two sentences, I wrote while next to, simply because of the nature of it. He has reached the end before setting out on his journey. That to 
give primacy to obedience as a virtue is really to leap forward in the spiritual life, to embrace what we see manifest in Christ, this obedient, self-emptying love, that his food was to do the will of the Father. And so we see the shortness of that path. We, we leap forward in the sense that it really does shape our hearts in a profound way. It frees us from so many things that afflict us in regards to the passions when we are able to let go of that self-role. And he says, for obedience is distrust of oneself and everything, however good it might be, right to the end of one's life. So it gives a kind of clarity to us. And I, I think if we can look at, at our lives with that kind of clarity, it does bring a kind of freedom to us. That this is my life. And this is what God has called me to, what is right before me. And it might not be the the most uh, yeah, kind of exotic thing or exciting thing or what is, is going to seem appealing to the world at all. But in terms of value, it has the greatest value in the eyes of God, precisely because one, again, one is imitating that, that love and embracing the, the love that we've been given in order that we could engage others in, in such a way. And so the one that one becomes obedient to ultimately is Christ. But say for in with marriage, it's the spouses being obedient to each other, to their vows to each other, but also then to the particular aspects of their vocation, which would be, again, the care of the family. And, and seen in that way, it does simplify one's life. And I think it even... Uh, it doesn't make it, them easy, but it clarifies the, the value of the mundane and the difficult things of day-to-day -day life. Getting up every morning, going to one's job, or getting up and taking care of infants, you know, multiple times during the night, or simply taking care of children as they're aging and forming them, that uh, at some point one does not even have to think about it, because the the heart has so embraced this path and the clarity of that path uh, is uh, become so obvious to us that one simply does it. In some ways, I think even with children, you know, I know parents have to force themselves to do that, but I think having children, I imagine has, because there's an immediate response that is needed there. You don't, you tell a crying infant, yeah, just hold on for a second. You know, let me, you know, finish, you know, what I'm doing here at the computer. You have to take care of the need immediately. And I think that's what we want to get into the habit of doing, to respond with this immediacy and kind of immediacy to the needs of others or respond with, you know, a love and a generosity that flows from our hearts automatically. Sam Rodriguez. Hello. Uh, hi, Father. Um, you know, normally I would write this out, but I think this might be something that'd be better to uh, speak okay. if that's okay. Sure. I had a, I had a, uh, this, this reminds me of a, a crisis of faith I had in December of 2013. Mm -hmm. Skipping over the details, the effect of it was nothing made sense. Prayer didn't make sense. Just the idea of discerning God's will or even knowing whether I was connecting to God made no sense to me and the thing that made the only prayer that made sense to me at that time was the thomas merton prayer the one that goes my lord god i have no idea where i'm going 
I have, I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I'm following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing. And skipping over the rest of the prayer for now, that one line was sort of the hook that brought me back. Right. And in praying about it, I was like, okay, okay, so what pleases God? And the thing that came to me was obedience. So I thought, well, I've got a spiritual director. I can't make sense of anything. So I'm just going to lay it all out to, to my spiritual director. I'm going to pray for him. And then whatever he ends up deciding, um, he may be wrong, but I, I was confident that God would bless my obedience, that even if he was wrong, that it was the right move to make. And that was literally the hook that pulled me out of like an abyss that seemed absolutely impossible to, to uh, otherwise, you know, uh, make sense of anything in my faith life. And it actually turned out to be one of the most uh, critical turning points in my life that changed, shaped the trajectory of my, my walk with Christ from um, that moment yeah. forward. Absolutely. And, you know, very good example. And I think it's true in our day-to-day -day life that we go through many periods. I mean, uh, I think all of mine have sort of become jumbled together. I can't pinpoint mine as clearly as you did in 2013. Maybe mine is like the last 30 years sort of <laughs> scrunched together. But, uh, you know, this, this it's a sense that it becomes very difficult to see the path ahead. And often things don't seem reasonable to us. You know, from our perspective, it can seem just the opposite that what is being asked of us uh, is so difficult or so hard or so unmanageable. And, you know, where is the loving God in the midst of this? And is God present in the midst of it? And uh, it becomes very difficult outside of this kind of obedience of faith that we hold fast to God and allow him to draw us forward even when we cannot see things clearly. Newman's hymn, Lead Kindly Light, one step enough for me, you know, one step at a moment, God gives the light for us to see the way forward. And often that's all that we have, you know, is to, to take that one step toward him until he opens up uh, the greater path for us. And, uh, and so ultimately, this is what obedience is doing for us. Again, it's, it's not a kind of infantilizing of the self or a slavishness, even though he uses the term slavery here, it's giving one's will over to one who is you have freely chosen and who you love and trust, but it's not meant to infantilize a person. In fact, it's meant to help them mature on a, the level of spiritual life uh, to put on the mind of Christ fully and uh, to be so conformed to him. So it's meant to help a person grow. And I think we see that there's a problem with obedience when uh, especially those who are entrusted with the care of others do just the opposite, you know, where what is asked leads to a deeper confusion or darkness or, or is meant to control, manipulate. And we find nothing of that. And again, this is where I think the, the Desert Fathers often surprise us, because I think they are often seen as being very harsh, uh, when in fact we see, again, so much the language of desire, of love, of gentleness and tenderness within the stories put before us.
So let's go on to number six. When motives of humility and real longing for salvation incite us to bend our neck and entrust ourselves to another in the Lord before entering upon this life, if there is any cleverness and prudence in us, we ought first to question and examine and even, so to speak, test our helmsmen so as to not, so as not to mistake the sailor for the pilot, the sick man for a doctor, a passionate for a dispassionate man, the sea for a harbor, and so bring about the speedy shipwreck of our soul. But when once we have entered the arena of piety and obedience, we must no longer judge our good manager in a way at all, any way at all, even though we may perhaps see in him some slight failings since he is only human. Otherwise, by sitting in judgment, we shall get no profit from our subjection. So this ties in very well, I think, with our study of the Evergetinus and we've, where we've talked about the revelation of one's thoughts to another, that one isn't to do this indiscriminately, that only to do so with one who's a discerning individual, again, who's lived a holy life and has manifested that in the way that they engage in the spiritual life. And so here, John too says, before one enters upon this path, knowing that it is the most difficult path, the roughest path to walk, that you are to be discerning. If there's any kind of prudence or cleverness in you, let it be used for this purpose, to make sure that you test your helmsman. And the helmsman is you know, the one who steers the boat. And uh, often the noose, the eye of the heart or the eye of the soul, is described in the very same terminology that purified by the grace of God, the noose becomes the helmsman that guides and directs our path toward God. And so we want for one who's going to guide and direct us, a helmsman, one who, who acts as our noose, the eye of the heart, the eye of the soul, to guide and direct us in the spiritual life when we are perhaps lacking that purity of heart for ourselves. So one, the one who has gained purity of heart has that capacity to fulfill that role. So if we choose a helmsman, uh, and not a helmsman, but rather a, 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 a simple sailor, then eventually we could end up in shipwreck. Or similarly, he says, you know, a sick man for a doctor. So one who really is sick, who's driven by the passions himself, and uh, may look from all appearances to be the doctor, but in reality is not, then he's not going to be able to guide and lead us toward healing. And so, you know, whether it's in seeking out a confessor or spiritual director, or, you know, looking at religious communities, uh, one is thinking about entering into, that one would uh, be discerning and to be able to look to see if there are individuals there, in particular those in positions of this kind of responsibility, who are, have really lived the life in a deep fashion. And uh, this can be very difficult in our day and age. And I, I think primarily it is because we have become disconnected from the spiritual tradition uh, and even being able to understand things in this way and the importance of it. And um, 
you know, and I think even in our particular vocations in life, you know, in, uh, in marriage, you know, I think of seeking someone, a kindred spirit who's seeking the same thing, but also would be one who's, you know, who has experience in living a life of virtue, where, where we would be equally yoked and pursuing the same things in one's life. Uh, because the journey is a difficult one and a rough one. And so if one, if both aren't seeking to be obedient to that call, to that vocation, then you can be at cross purposes <clears throat> and things can become very difficult then. Okay. Anything about this paragraph that stands out? Any comments or questions? Because, you know, I think the discernment becomes very important uh, in spending that time because inevitably, he says, that you are going to see the weakness in your spiritual elder or spiritual director. Uh, they are human beings. And so uh, you're going to see flaws. And the evil one will use that to create strife between one's elder and one's disciple and uh, break down that confidence, that trust and love uh, to drive a wedge between them and to make one think, well, maybe if I went to this other one and uh, part of that can be the temptation of, of the evil one to pull us off of that path of obedience that we've committed ourselves to. We can be very changeable in mind and heart. And it doesn't take much to make our thoughts move away, uh, even, you know, from friendships, but even something such as this, you know, a spiritual director doesn't take very much to make us call that into question if we aren't guarding our hearts. Okay. Number seven, it is absolutely indispensable for those of us who wish to retain undoubting faith in our superiors to write their good deeds indelibly in our hearts and constantly remember them so that when the demons so among us lack of faith in them, we may be able to silence them by what is preserved in our memory. For the more faith flourishes in the heart, the more alacrity the body has in service, but he who has stumbled on distrust has already fallen. For all that does not spring from faith is sin. The moment any thought of judging or condemning your superior occurs to you, leap away from it as from fornication. Whatever you do, give that snake no license, no place, no entry, no power, but say to that serpent, listen, deceiver. I have no authority to judge my superior, but he has been appointed to sit in judgment on me. It is not I who am to be his judge, but he is deputed to me, to be, to be mine. So, you know, within a religious community where one vows to be obedient to one's superior and where, where one freely chooses to enter into that reality and voluntarily embraces it, then uh, we should expect that that's going to be tested that we are going to be tempted to move away from it. And often those weaknesses of an elder or a superior, an abbot, for example, will become glaringly 
obvious to an individual. And I think that's when the de devil will tempt us uh, to, uh, you know, what is, uh, you know, what he compares here to fornication. You know, it's a kind of temptation to adultery, to be unfaithful to what one has given oneself over to in love. And it can be very powerful. Ambrose Little. Ambrose writes, would you think that this guidance applies to, for example, our bishop and or the Holy Father? The catechism says that we owe religious submission of intellect and will. Makes me wonder about what's going on in the church these days. Yeah, you know, there, there is this spirit that is within the church today. And I don't think we can simplify it, except in saying that sin has affects individuals and it darkens the mind and the heart that darkens the noose. And so we don't see things clearly. And uh, this can affect uh, individuals and the whole church itself. But uh, there is this kind of critical spirit that can begin to dominate. And this same, what he describes here of, you know, of moving us to this distrust uh, and once we stumble on that, we've already fallen and we've already begun that psychological, psychological ball begins rolling and we begin to distrust everything that the individual says. And I think what, it doesn't take one very long to be on the internet to see that that's true. You know, we are presented with these partial images uh, of, of individuals, of circumstances, of things said or not said. And so, you know, and we lose sight of the fact that we are often viewing this through virtual reality. You know, we have no contact with the particular individuals. We, do up, we have no idea what's going on in their mind, in their heart, or what God is doing in their life, or what is God, God is doing in the church. And yet we will put ourselves in the position of being that harsh judge and uh, to freely and openly criticize others. Now, you know, I think when there are issues certainly of injustice or where there's uh, criminal behavior, you know, we, we don't want to allow obedience then to make us turn a blind eye to injustice. So I think where there's scandal in the church, obviously, uh, that, you know, this is to be brought into the full light. But I, I think what we see prevailing now in the culture, but within the church as well, is this hypercritical spirit uh, that really has nothing to do with the spirit of obedience that we've been reading about here, uh, that lacks that generosity of spirit and lacks that spirit of love for the one that God has placed within this position. So even if one sees a certain flaw within the, the Holy Father, for example, or there's a way that something is being said, or an attitude with which it's said, or uh, even the person's bearing or look about them, or the fact that he was a Jesuit, you know, all these things, you know, can get stuck in our mind. And that becomes the lens by which we, we view the individual and the way that we hear what he says, or what God is saying through him. And there are so many voices that are are very harsh 
within the life of the church now. And I think this is, he's even been pointing this out. And I know that it inflames the minds and the hearts of many, but I think what he's pointing out is actually on, on mark in many ways. And uh, even if there's some part of us that thinks, okay, there are so many things about liturgy, for example, we'll take that just as the most obvious one. There's so many things about liturgy that uh, really are problematic uh, and have been problematic for a couple generations now that uh, we, there can be this, uh, you know, moving into these radically uh, different positions in opposition and this kind of oppositional language and one becomes more and more entrenched in it and everything that the other individual says, no matter how on mark or how wise or true it might be, people will look for ways to find something within it that is wrong or uh, that can be judged harshly. You know, I read very quickly uh, the Holy Father's writing, uh, I forget, what was it called today? The, I desire to, I long and her desire to celebrate this, this meal with you, right? That's the name of it. And uh, it's on the liturgy and it's talking about the spirit of the liturgy itself and, uh, and acknowledges some of the very real problems. And it's interesting that the, over the past two and a half years, uh, I led a group focusing on Romano Guardini's little book, Meditations Before Mass. And this was written all the way back in the 1940s. And the Holy Father was quoting him over and over again in this text. And I thought, Nobody's probably going to hear that. Nobody's going to see that. Uh, Guardini, I think, was a brilliant man, often overlooked, and he could foresee some of the things and the struggles that we were going to have, and the things also that we needed to really be thinking about and regarding in, in regards to liturgy. And the Pope was saying all the things that we read and talked about in this group for two and a half years. And we were able to do that, I think, because we slowed things down. And it was also because it was a writing that took place before the council in 1940s. So every, there was a generosity of spirit that over the course of these two and a half years, we could understand what he was saying and, and be able to receive it. And, but I think somebody could read what the Holy Father wrote and really you know, immediately move to the thing that they would be critical about. And you know, certainly the, the church has done a lot. I mean, you would have to make up some of the things and some of the ways that we've done to uh, you know, destroy our credibility and our moral authority. And so we bear a large you know, sense of responsibility for this. But the, this, uh, getting back to Ambrose's question here uh, you know, about this kind of a, a spirit of obedience to the Holy Father, that what is it that we do in our day-to-day -day life in terms of our own fidelity our own living in the spirit of obedience and imitation of Christ. What is it that we do to strengthen the body of Christ as a whole and also to strengthen the Holy Father in his role in terms of, of praying for him? You know, it's interesting today, you know, we celebrate the feast of Peter and Paul. And, you know, often as with so many saints, they're, you know, held up as being these, these models for us of this extraordinary virtue. And both of them were very weak men. You know, in reality, they were not great men 
And, you know, Paul, Peter waffled on all these different occasions. Uh, I talked about a couple of examples, you know, he, here he was eating with the Gentiles. He had thrown away the dietary laws and Paul has a fight with him saying, what in the world are you doing? You're, you're following along with the Judaizers who want the, the men converts to be circumcised as well as to follow all the dietary laws and prescriptions within that had sort of, you know, uh, come to surround the law. And so he tells Peter, you know, you're like a reed blown in the wind you know, act in the role in the way that you're supposed to. And Paul was just as bad. You know, I think he could be harsh. He could be critical, you know, and project that out onto others. And we know that he was a persecutor of, of the faith, you know, and dragged people out of their homes and watched over their being put to death. And so, you know, it was the grace of God active in their life that humbled them, that then allowed God to work great things within them. And we often do not see the church. We do not see others within the church, and especially those that we are critical of or the Holy Father in this kind of fashion. So I think, you know, reading something like this does give us pause. It says, okay, am I really living uh, in this spirit in the full measure that is being described here for me? Anthony, book recommendation, Papacy and Revolution by Hales. It was the conservative, but really liberal because they were so headstrong. Jansenist who unwillingly had a seminal role in bringing about the French Revolution. Right, so yes, this kind of harshness, uh, you know, that then causes individuals to want to cast off the faith altogether because it's oppressive and it's no longer reflective of, uh, of the gospel or the joy of the gospel. And uh, I think we see that very much within the life of the church now. You know, the, the church is, I think, in a very dark place, at least uh, in this kind of public forum. I think where maybe most people live their, their life of faith. And I think we have to believe this, that the majority don't live in that kind of maybe darkness or hypocritical spirit, but it's really become much more strong in these past years. And so, you know, by arguing for something so hard or taking this hypocritical approach to things, we can swing in, you know, too far in one direction and become incapable of hearing the very things that we need to hear. And I think if the Holy Father has been sort of harsh about that and harsh towards certain groups, it's because I think he sees something there that is lacking. You know, religious people can become really hyper-focused because we can become convinced that what we are doing or what we are thinking is from God. And if we lack this spirit of obedience, we can really become entrenched in what is very dark and self-willed. Okay. So why don't we move on to paragraph number eight. The fathers have laid down that psalmody is a weapon and prayer is a wall and honest tears are a bath, but blessed obedience in their judgment is confession of faith without which no one 
no one subject to passions will see the Lord. So all of these things, and this sort of takes us back to Mark, you know, Mark's comments that started us off here. You know, how do we take this path? How do we form and fashion it? Psalmody is a weapon, prayer a wall, tears a bath. These are all the things that have been given to us in the spiritual life that help begin to form and shape the heart in order that we begin to see things more in a Christ-like fashion. But obedience, blessed obedience, uh, uh, is a confession of the faith uh, that really does free us from the passions in a radical way. Again, precisely because it does conform us to Christ in this powerful way. The moment that we set our will aside, then we let go of the will that also leads us to want to satisfy the appetites and the desires that give rise then to the passions. So our living in a spirit of obedience, of dying to self and self-will, then strengthens us in the struggle with the passions as a whole. You know, when we humble ourselves in mind and body, which is what obedience does, you know, we let go of our own judgment, our opinion, but also physically we do, we act in the way that is taught to us. And so we're humbled fully in and through this particular virtue. And in it through comes this great freedom, uh, not only to follow Christ, but freedom from the passions. So again, I think we, we were, are beginning to see in the fathers this, this very high anthropology, this view of the human person, and even something like obedience isn't, again, this putting somebody under your thumb and crushing them down or making them, turning them into little children. You know, that did exist within the church, in fact. You know, I think in some of the communities in the, the 50s, and, you know, we see this great exodus from religious communities. And I often think that part of the reason for that is that many of them were lived this kind of life where it did seem to be exactly that, that the, the understanding of obedience and the reason for it wasn't clear in the mind and the heart. All it felt like was sla true slavery, or it was so infantilizing that the individuals in those communities could not grow up mature emotionally or spiritually. And I've mentioned here the story before about how the novice mistress, you know, wanting to take a photograph of all the sisters. And so she has them all stand on uh, various sized blocks so that they're all the same size, you know, that they're all at the same level, that there could be no individuality there. And so often obedience was exactly that. It was like crushing, it was like the Marines, but well, we're going to break you down and destroy, you know, this self-will and then build you up again and to be these killing machines and uh, fighting machines. And, you know, in the spiritual life, ultimately, that it's not going to bear fruit. And I think this is why we saw this massive exodus in it. It was not only the, the breakdown of the practice of those of these virtues. This we do see, but I think we see it after the fact, after so many left and saw what was being taught and practiced as being oppressive, not something that's reflective of the spiritual tradition. Okay.
Any thoughts? Yes, Mark. So I really like this because I think it, I think it's like going back to the basics mm -hmm. and just saying, well, first of all, we've talked about not trusting ourselves, right? And that's, you know, when I read of saints that said that mm -hmm. years ago, I thought, I don't understand it really. Why don't you trust yourself? <laughs> but then the more I got into this and the more I've studied the fathers and the more I've prayed, the more I understand why I don't trust myself and shouldn't. And, but that becomes difficult by itself because then it seems to, what seems to arise is some, um, you know, lack of confidence, I guess, right. which then makes things difficult. Mm -hmm. then, but then it also then requires me then to rely more on God. So I like this because it makes me go back to saying, you know, you just have to get back to the basics. Right. And, you know, people in my life would hardly say that I don't have clarity, but they don't know what's going on in here where I feel like I don't. That's right. So, but yeah. anyway, just a comment. Yeah, that's right. And it is going back to the basics and the obedient, what the obedience is a reflection of is ultimately our obedience to Christ. And in the face of the confusion of our own judgment and our thoughts, the weakness of our will, the lack of purity of heart, we are constantly directing ourselves to him, that ultimately he is the helmsman. And so are constantly crying out, say the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, or, or oh God, come to my assistance, oh Lord, make haste to help me. We are not simply looking at ourselves in this diminished way. You know, I'm not worth anything. You know, I'm, you know, this terrible sinner. But in, in the acknowledgement of that weakness, we are turning to he, he who is our strength. And he'll go on in some of these stories to sell us and to say to us, you know, what gives us great confidence when we are on this rocky uh, water on the ocean is that we do have this, you know, when you're in a boat that's being tossed around, you know, what's going to give you confidence is that you have this helmsman who's guiding the ship, these confident sailors who know what they're doing. Or the same thing if you hear thieves approaching, you know, what's going to give you confidence is not the idea of soldiers, but their presence there in your midst that are going to scare off the thieves. And similarly, in the spiritual life, you know, the, the spiritual thieves that can take everything from us, what gives us confidence in the face of our own weakness and poverty is not our own strength, or our own goodness, but the goodness and the strength of Christ himself. And so it's our constant turning to him that we, we find the grace that we need. And I think, again, you know, Peter and Paul, whose feast we celebrate today, that's what they they came to experience first their own poverty, radical poverty. That Paul was struck blind, you know, thinking that he saw everything clear. He struck blind, then he goes off for three years, you know, and it's you know one wonders what he did during those three years, what he was immersed in, the scriptures, or prayer, and you know, Peter, you know, had to realize his great poverty and the denial of Christ, even though he had proclaimed him the son of the living God. The Messiah, you know, had to acknowledge his own profound weakness and poverty so that he would 
turn to Christ and rest upon him. You know, the only way that Peter could be rock for the church is if he rested upon the everlasting rock, who is Christ. And that's the lesson that we all have to learn. And obedience, we are being shown, is that shortest path. It's really in the most practical and personal way to rest upon Christ, you know, to subject ourselves. You know, St. Paul says, we take every thought captive and we make it obedient to Christ. So in, a very, in the most personal way, you know, the thoughts that come to our mind, the ideas that come to our mind, we bring before Christ, we lay them before him for his judgment or blessing. Is this something that really is coming from him or is it arising out of my own passion and desires? Is it something that's going to be pleasing to God or something that will be offensive or harmful to my own, own soul? And I think so often we turn these things into abstract ideas and we lose sight of how at every moment in our life we're, we have this opportunity to live it fully. That brings us almost 8.30, and uh, rather than going on to uh, the, the next step, or not next step, but next number nine, why don't we stop there for the evening? That was a lot to absorb in, in any case. And again, this is one of the most challenging of the steps. It's long, and as I mentioned, it's one of the two longest steps in the work. And so, you know, don't be afraid to take down notes to bring things back up again or to send an email, anything that you want to talk about in regards to it. It's, it's better that we spend a lot of time with the, this than to rush through it. Okay. All right. Why don't we close there as always with the, our Father. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And I want to God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.